Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 151 of the Freight 360 Podcast. We got a special one today. We got Dean Croak, the principal industry analyst at DAT, back on with us. We'll, we'll bring you in in just a second here, Dean. Uh, but hey, if you're brand new, you, you caught a great first episode of Freight 360. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, we appreciate your continued listenership. Continue to send us all your questions, leave those reviews, and share us with all your friends. Um, so without further ado, Dean, welcome back. It's so good to have you on the show once again. It's been it's been a handful of months, but we love having you on. Yeah, yeah, you're my favorite guys to be on with. I, uh, I do a few <laughs> shows. I do a few shows every week, but I just love the format, the conversational style. I think it's it's a it's a winning format. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. We. Uh, it's funny when Ben, when you and I started doing this, it was like very structured. Then we're like, eh, we pretty much just think of a you know, like we'll grab a good topic and go with it because I think what's one of the cool things about a lot of the you know the the leading experts in the industry is there's so much knowledge that sometimes the best way to just get it out is just that just to talk and have a conversation yeah. and you can pick yeah. so much up from that. So we have fun doing it. I find that the same on our show. We I think we're up to 200 episodes and uh, we started off very structured and you know, with scripts and everything. And the more we do it, the more conversations we get into, the more directions we head. Uh, I, I just find it hard to go into a structured conversation um, because sometimes when you just let a conversation flow, you go all sorts of directions and things come back to you that you'd forgotten about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And just even the way the mind works, it's just connecting topics. It allows you to find interesting, yeah. unexpected right. things. I always exactly. think of it like the analogy back to like even like college, right? Like the structured lectures where it's point by point were very hard to sit through. But the professors you had that would engage the audience and conversations were always the ones I felt like you learned the most and got the most out of it. Yeah. yeah. And this is kind of also one of the reasons that i'm i'm anti reading off of a script for for you know any kind of sales role especially in freight brokers because it, you know when you just can f find your own voice obviously there's certain things you want to hit on in a good conversation but just gotta just gotta roll with the punches so all right well um as far as a sports update here i'm just i got my brand new josh allen bills jersey in the mail yesterday so i'm super excited to uh to put that on for a great 2022 hopefully Super Bowl season for the Buffalo Bills. But uh, what's what else is going on? You, Dean, you were saying, um, was it, uh, uh, you take it away. You were telling yeah, me something about your sports before. Yeah, July, July is my favorite time of the year. I absolutely love July because the Tour de France is on. I do a lot of road biking. I uh, did triathlons about 40 pounds ago. And I uh, just, <laughs> just love cycling. Like I just love road biking, mountain biking. Um, it's just a great way to, to keep healthy. But the Tour de France is just one of those spectacles that I just, I'm in awe of. I had the opportunity to go a couple of years ago and follow the XBO trucks around. And uh, what you don't see behind the scenes is there's like 120 trucks that uh, range from, they're mostly straight trucks with, uh, you know, with dog trailers on the back. Um, but they, they go from stage to stage and these drivers and their assistants set up all the barriers, signs, stages, there's, there's, uh, there's 120 trucks. There's thousands of miles of cabling that's got to be set up every day. Wow. There's like a couple of crews that leapfrog each other because you've got to start and the finish every day. 
And then, and then what you don't see ahead of the actual race is uh, what they call the caravan. And the caravan is in an hour and a half procession of all of the sponsors in floats throwing out swag. Huh, really? It, it goes for a full hour and a half. So if you're standing in the middle of nowhere in a hayfield, which is what I did on one of the stages, mm-hmm. um, they'll come past. It takes an hour and a half to go past. You are armed up with glasses, hats, water bottles, anything to do with cycling swag. And then you'll see the helicopter coming, and that means the bike riders are close. But what you, what you don't see on TV is the speed. And they will go past you at 35, 40 miles an hour in the black oh gosh. It's one of the most amazing events. But to watch it on TV, on French TV, it's actually like touring around France for three weeks. That's the best part of the Tour de France. That's awesome. I'll tell you what, I got into cycling when I moved to Florida. It's probably my second favorite activity up with golf. I mean, one just, it's flat, which is nice down here, but like, I mean, one for exercise and to just be outside and just, it's just enjoyable. I feel like it's my, one of my favorite things to do. You can kind of zone out. It doesn't feel like you're exercising and it's more like, I know you're like playing as a kid, right? Like that's exactly still what it feels like. Exactly. Well, I have a Peloton in my basement and I very, very rarely use it. So I'm a, ne- never was a big bike guy. I don't even own a bike outside of the fake one that, you know, in my basement there. But um, I, speaking of golf, Ben, I did see something yesterday. Wasn't there, was there a tournament that where a guy set a record for back to back something? I'm, I, di- I didn't catch it. I saw Tony Fina won back to back. Um PGA events, which is, I mean, I think that's, those were his like second and third or third and fourth. And he's had a pretty long career. So, I mean, for him to string back to back, yeah. he's been playing since like what, 2012, 13, give or take. Yeah. I Cause mean, he was saying like, um, it was, he, there was a good quote. It was like, I'm only a winner because I was a, a loser that kept trying or something like that. Yeah. Right? And there was another yeah. quote, like, cause his kids were there. He was like, it was great for my kids to not only see like the wins, but they saw the losses that led up to it. Right. And that was the one that like got picked up, I think, yeah. you know, turned into a meme and was everywhere. But yeah, I mean, I think he's a great guy. I've always liked him as a golfer, but he's definitely not been in the, you know, the top handful of, you know, finishes over the past few years. So, yeah. yeah. It's a great analogy for sales calls, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I was, you know, it's so funny you said that. I actually wrote this on the board. I heard somebody say this in a different interview. Somebody was, it was a, it was a professional surfer and they interviewed him. He goes, I don't know why they call it surfing because if you're out there for six, seven hours, you're really paddling like 98% of the time. You're only surfing for like one or 2%, right? It should be called paddling, right? And I'm like, that really is sales. It shouldn't be called sales. It should be called rejections. And like you occasionally get a sale. And that's really why most people don't make it because they think you're just going to sell things all day. And the reality is you're going to deal with rejection all day. And when you get the sale, it makes all the rejection worthwhile. But Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit like um, venture capital companies, right? They only need mm-hmm. one, uh, one venture capital out of 10 to work. Yeah. They're, they're home and home. Yeah. So I guess I can call snowboarding chairlifting then, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Um, well, hey, we, we have, you know, Dean from DAT on with us today. I don't think we need to read off the ad. Just make sure to check out the, the show notes to get a free link of Power Express or Trucker's Edge. Um, let's get into the discussion on the on our topic today, which we're just going to kind of have an open conversation generally about the market and some things that have been going on recently. So, um, Dean, if I mean, I know like this is something that it changes you know, daily, right? You know, what's going on in the market. But 
if you were to just zoom out, like pan out all the way back to like right at the beginning of the COVID onset, where have you seen things from the macro level um, progressed like as, as to where they're getting today? Because, you know, we saw it, everything shut down and then everything got crazy. And it seems like in the last couple of months, things have started to kind of feel back to like they were before. Um, what, what are you seeing from the big picture? It's a really good, uh, you know, segue into the discussion because I've been saying on our on our show each Tuesday that demand looks a lot like 2018 did, uh, because we are returning to more seasonal, normal patterns. And if 2018 was a really good year, and it was a fairly normal year, it had seasonal patterns, but it was a strong year of demand for truckload carriers, uh, and shippers were shipping pretty good volume. So that's been our last year that that I can recall that's the most similar to what I'm seeing now. Uh, volumes are reasonably similar, not not up too much or not down too much, depending on the equipment type. But the the other thing that's changed during the entire pandemic, of course, was the influx of new carriers into the industry because of the record high spot rates. Um, if I look at, if you think about our our spot market business, and you think about load posts as a proxy for demand, and you think about equipment posts as a proxy for supply. Demand looks like 2018 levels. In fact, we're very mm-hmm. close to 28 levels when we look at load post volumes, only within you know four or five percentage points. But supply looks like 2019 did. Very, in fact, worse than 2019. We saw this week a record number of load of equipment post volumes for carriers, the highest we've ever seen in July, and in flatbed, the highest ever. So, so, a- so we're seeing. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit further in there. So just to reiterate what I'm hearing, right? So we're seeing demand, right? Similar to 2018, but we're seeing the supply of trucks much higher, closer to 2019, when there was a rush to take advantage of all of the high spot rates. So guys went and bought trucks, expanded their fleets. People got into the industry that maybe weren't in it for a while and went, hey, I'll go drive a truck now because I can make, you know, twice what I was making before, right? Yep, yep. Um. Yeah, so just keep going from there. Well, so that's exactly what we're seeing mm-hmm. because we, I think when we talked about it last year, we uh, we were thinking about do we see a repeat of the 2018-2019 freight cycle, you mm-hmm. know, record numbers of um, uh, acquisitions of new trucks and trailers in that Q3, Q4 mark. And then we saw rate slide, record numbers of bankruptcies in Q2. We had like nearly 1,200 used trucks hit the auction blocks in July, I think it was, or June of 2019. Um, you know, we're only seeing a couple of hundred of the auction blocks, you know, uh, this this June just gone. So we're not seeing anywhere near the trucks exit the industry. If you what about the, the prices of those trucks? Because I know that was something that yeah. you guys and Chris talked about along the show was a lot of the drivers that paid at the peak rates yeah. are the first to have to leave the market now because they're not being able to make the truck payments. Yeah, yeah. And that's happening with the power only guys in particular. So they paid way too much for used trucks. Now, mm. In February, the average price for a used truck at five years and just over 500,000 miles with very little warranty was $110,000. Like that was a record number for a, a three wow. to five year old sleeper truck. They've come way down since, but still high compared to pre pandemic levels. Where are that and, now? Could you give us some examples like where they should be and where you think where they think a normal market would be and kind of where they're at now? Um, I'll have to I'll put some data while we're talking. Yeah. I, I don't. Um, they were 110. I'm going to say they were down in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, normally you'd see them probably 20% lower than that. But I can get get some data. No, I think that's a good that's benchmark, a, though. So 110, where well, they could have bought it for 60 in a normal market. Yeah. 
uh, and even yeah, sixty is probably a little bit much. I mean, part of the reason that prices were so high was because low mileage trucks were going for record money because fleets were buying them because they couldn't get enough trucks out of factories. That situation mm-hmm. is starting to reverse. Trucks are coming out of factories. They are getting the new orders that they need, and that's taken the pressure off low mileage trucks on the auction blocks. But the other part of the industry is the new entrants that came in and bought a used truck, paid a lot of money for a used vehicle. And don't forget, new entrants to the industry are paying upwards of twenty thousand dollars per powered unit for insurance. Like they, you know, and that's part of the reason a lot of guys that are caught up in the AB five fiasco can't mm-hmm. automatically just go out and get their own authority. Because it's going to cost you between twenty and thirty to get your own authority. That's if a big number, right? So that's why they're protesting and very concerned about it. So I think there's a lot of guys out there that entered this power-only phase, in particular. Like the, the, you know, there's a lot of fleets were looking for power-only. If you recall last year, there was a lot of need just to move freight between warehouses, and power-only became quite a big part of the the market growth. Those guys are the ones that have exited the fir- first, and and that's the mm-hmm. same. As what happened in 2019. If I could give you a quick anecdote, um, where I parked my truck here in Andover, Mass, it's a big secured lit parking lot. Eight guys, I've been tracking eight guys that started last January, January 2021, bought trucks, used trucks, went and hauled freight for one of the big uh, retail players. And um, so 18 months later, uh, four have sold and are driving a P&D truck making, it, making 85 grand a year. Right? So, so they went to the fleet. Got out. Yeah, mm-hmm. two can't get their trucks out of the repair shop because they can't afford to, and the other two are selling. Wow. So, I mean, so, but in that same lot, and this is why you can't just say there'll be a mass exodus of capacity. And the industry is very nuanced. There's other guys in there that are looking to grow their business that started off as owner-operated, did well in the spot market, now got a good mix of spot and contract. And then there are other guys who are saying, hey, I, I, don't, I own my truck. I'm just going to park it. Yeah, and when things improve, I'll come back. So that's what's happening right now. I wanted, I want to, I want to pull two things right and relate them back to brokerage, right? Because I, I think a very similar thing happened, right? Where everybody's running at the spot, right? Right? They're grabbing the spot market loads. They're getting them. That's primarily where we add value as a brokerage, right? Makes sense. But again, if you're not constantly trying to bring in some dedicated lower margin freight into your brokerage, the same as an asset company, right. when you live by the short term, you are also going to die by the short term. Meaning. When it swings to the other side and you have no predictable business, mm-hmm. you don't have any stability. You don't have any ability, like you said, to either reinvest, to grow, and to honestly set yourself up to be in a better place when the market shifts right. again. Well, that's your first goal as an operator. I mean, when I drove trucks for you know millions of miles, when I, wherever I'd go into a shipper, my first thought was, how do I get this as prime contract freight? Mm-hmm. How do I get this as my own? That's yep. my first goal. I know I'm asking questions because I'm doing a great job. I'm on time. I'm looking after the freight. And that's what this friend of mine's been able to do. And I think some folks in the brokerage might have seen this happen where shippers were desperate for capacity of any kind, mm-hmm. um, built relationships with carriers and bypassed them. And that's what happened with a friend of mine who was running um, down in North Carolina with reefer freight out of New England. A shipper said, hey, can you do this load every week for me? Mm-hmm. He said, of course. So now he's averaging four bucks a mile round trip on you know hauling a reefer right now he's looking to add two more trucks because he's been able to build this really good balance of spot and contract i think that's what a lot of successful regional carriers have been able and the relationship right yeah. like that is the yeah. onset of the relationship right and that is what's going to persist no matter what market conditions i want to ask you about something on this same topic too because as you're saying these two big economic things right we have 
about similar supply to 2018, if we pull the pandemic out. But we have an oversupply because of what happened in the pandemic. And there was a lot of money. So they're there, right? So what I'm seeing in brokerages, and Nate and I were talking about this last week, is a lot of brokerages are seeing less load count year over year because there's also less spot loads in the market, right? The amount of rejected loads that were hitting the spot market was like 30%, give or take. Now it's at like 7%, right? So there's less spot market loads out there. So if you look into a lot of these brokerages, you're seeing their load count down 20% over last year, maybe 10%, right? But their margins, like their profit is above what it was last year, right? And for me, that means that's that's only temporary because there is a cheaper cost to procuring the transportation. You're paying less for your trucks, right? So everybody's like, well, my load counts down, but we're making more money. But the other Mm -hmm. thing is like, one, how long do you think that's going to last is the first question I want to ask you. Like, cause I mean, clearly it's temporary. Something in the short run should not be cheaper than in the long run, right? Like something predictable. We're like on six months in a row of the national average being flip-flop, you know, spoppy and cheaper than contract. How long can that last? Well, you're seeing the tables turn right now. Rates as diesel came down, line haul rates went up this week. Mm -hmm. So what you'll see is, so as one of the crazy things that I saw is when diesel prices escalated, line haul rates plummeted. And of course, that meant you're still moving the load for the same amount. It's just you're buying capacity at a lower rate. Well, what's happened is is the reverse now happens as diesel prices have dropped 61 cents in six weeks. You're now seeing spot rates level out and start to climb. In fact, when you look at our short-term forecasts, uh, which which we can share with all of our listeners, our short-term forecast is showing that rates are going to move up in that four to five cents range by the time we get to the end of August. So the models are already picking up on declining diesel prices and then the beginnings of back-to-school, holiday season, Thanksgiving shipping. So I think we've actually seen the bottom of this because the biggest single driver of line haul spot rates right now is diesel prices. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the EIA has got diesel forecast at four bucks a, a gallon by January. And, it's, and we're kind of on track for that right now. We've still got a long way to go. Like, so I'm not being too optimistic. because We're still we're over still, five bucks right now, aren't we? Yeah, 5.14, right? But okay. it's, it's dropped from 5.80 in six weeks. So it's, it's, it's dropping rapidly. So uh, that will drive, that will have upward pressure on the base line haul rate as that fuel surcharge component comes down. Um, but that's why you're seeing high volumes in the contract market because shippers have never paid more for freight. And I, I have another question too on that same topic before we go through this, because this is what they were talking with. Um, I forget who it was that Chris interviewed. I think it was last last week. It was somebody who's now at TransPlace that used to be at Walmart for about 25 years um, right. from the shipper perspective. Yeah. And he had said, you know, there's a tremendous bargain right now in the spot market, meaning like if you're a shipper, you can move freight right from the contract to the spot, get, likely get better service, right? Mm. And save money. And they talked a lot about clawing back some of the money that you know they blew out of their budgets during the pandemic by utilizing the spot market right so this is one of these like i feel like unicorn times or like these things that don't happen where a brokerage can talk to a shipper and tell them they can literally save them money by buying things in the short term because that really shouldn't happen and that's a tremendous advantage for freight brokerages right now to take advantage and i just don't see many of them doing it that much and i feel like this is it's valuable to the shipper it's in everyone's best interest to do these things i wish i got to use that financial uh oddity in my personal life like oh i want to go buy a car and i want it right now and i want you know whatever oh it's going to be cheaper sweet yeah. even better mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. i think that i think this is inter- i think it depends on the size of the shipper though 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I was at a conference last week, and one of the large truckload carriers said to me, because I said, you know, contract, there's a rebidding going on, and shippers are seeing eight to five, eight to fifteen percent decrease in contract rates from their incumbent carriers on mm-hmm. the rebidding. And he said, we aren't seeing it. We've got ten large shippers. Only one is trying to bid us down. The rest of them, we are holding firm. So these are, lar- I think, the large truckload carriers are in a different position than small fleets. And, and, and it's because of this. He said something that was really profound. And he said, our drivers have never made more money, right? And they've never wanted to be at home as often. So our driver availability is the lowest it's ever been. So it's not about a driver shortage or mm-hmm. you can't get trucks out of a factory. It's a it's, shift it's, in it's, values for the driver. It's the and they have a little bit more money. Right. It's the drivers available for dispatch every day is really, really low. And he said, that's tightening our capacity. And that's why we are keeping our rates high. We can't drop our rates because we can't claw back those driver wages. So I suspect there'll be some shippers that will say, yes, we can do that. That What we are seeing, though, is that shippers are they're being they're taking more of a scalpel approach to their RFPs. Right, so they're looking at they're using tools to say where am I paying more than the market on certain lanes and negotiating more heavily with carriers on those lanes, and mm-hmm. that's why you're seeing the net. You know, uh, you know, for the first time last week, uh, new rates entering routing guides turned negative for the first time since May 2020. So that's how so, long rates have been going up that are coming into routing guides. So the routing guides have been have continually gone up until really. Last Very week. recently, last week. I would have thought that they would have started dipping yeah. a couple months ago. That's that's interesting to hear. It took a while for them to come in because remember these the rates entering the routing guides now are probably based on RFPs two to three months ago. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the total the totality of the market, it's taking a while for those to come down. Now they are coming down. That's for sure. When you look at the the total market, so there's rebidding going on. Uh, I think truckload carriers, the large ones, are going to hold their ground. You, read, you listen to every one of the earnings calls in the last week. They're talking about a very strong second half. Driver supply is still going to be tight. Uh, I don't know that they've got much room to move because their costs are probably up in the order of 20 to 25 cents a mile on mm-hmm. the uh, contract fleet side. So that was another question, right? If we look at 18 versus now, obviously, this is the highest inflationary period in my life. The last one was right before pretty much Nate and I were born, late 70s, to early 80s, right? So clearly cost of everything, operating costs for a trucking company, operating costs for a brokerage, operating costs for a driver to live, right? Um, yep. Just things you buy that are getting more expensive, right? Yep. Do yep. you see them settling down above kind of 18 yep. levels just because yep. of, like you said, their cost per mile is up, would you say 25 cents per mile? I mean, that's pretty significant. Like they can only it fall is. so far before everybody right. goes, it doesn't, it's not, a f- we can't move this and, you know, pay our yeah. bills. Yep. Right. I think, I think we're there. Um, you know, d- uh, spot rates are a buck 88 uh, a mile, line haul rates this time in 18. Mm-hmm. Um, we're six cents a mile higher this week. So okay. we're actually a little bit higher than 2018 levels. We, we talked about, well, Ken and I did, and we kind of theorized and ended sort of in different places. I, I kind of suggested that we'll see a new floor price in where how far rates can drop. And they won't be what we saw in 2018 or 2019. They'll be more closer to what it costs an owner-operator to run. Mm-hmm. Which in, in this truck that I've been running in my spreadsheet for two years now, it was $1.75 a mile a year ago. It's $2.03 today. So, at so like 15%. 
yeah, give so or take. Two, at two dollars and three a mile, I'm paying myself a good wage. I'm paying all my costs, like uh, all my you know bills. But I'm still around where line haul spot rates are if I'm getting an all-in rate from my broker. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not. So I think that's where the floor is. I think we're at the floor right now, and it's interesting as diesel comes down, line haul rates are going up again. So it appears as if we're at that floor at around a dollar ninety-five a mile line haul. I just looked at it quickly now. That's thirty-five cents a mile higher than the pre-pandemic average for the end of July. Hmm. So, you know, despite all the doom and gloom talk now, I'm still I'm I'm paying a lot more to run my truck. But even because rates are still much higher and the market is mm-hmm. still so volatile, there's still margins there for me. Interesting. Yeah. Well, like, so if you were to take a stab at the where do we end up at the end of 2022, what would you predict? I mean, obviously, yeah. You know, for, forecasting anything is yeah. it's a crapshoot. But yeah. uh, all, all things remain the same. And let's just say things don't come out of yeah. nowhere. So Where would a you expect pandemic that, that comes in or a huge natural disaster or whatever. Or another war somewhere in the globe yeah, that war. shifts. There's always that. And then we saw the news today that uh, credit card spending is at record levels, like something like $16 trillion is our credit card debt. So people are on borrowed time with higher living costs by the sound of it. That's a that's a, an ominous sign for a big drop off in demand for physical goods. Um, yeah. We're spending a lot of money on experiences and uh, services right now. Um, I think that's sort of, I, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the first quarter of next year. Okay. We are, you know, right now we're in peak shipping season. It mightn't feel like it, but all of the back to school and holiday inventories are in our ports and landing in our ports now. That's why you're seeing such massive levels of congestion. It's why you're seeing spot rates go up on key port lanes that we're intermodal are also intermodal heavy, like Los Angeles, Dallas, Los Angeles, Chicago. So let me ask you about that one because I've had a carrier. I've a, one of a, the carriers I've worked with the longest yeah. does primarily drayage in Chicago. He's been doing it for he used, he was a driver thirty five years. I talked to asked him last week. I said, "What's it look like in Chicago?" Because I know it's a pretty big hub from stuff coming out of L.A. And he's like, "Ben, like it's a ghost town." He said, "If we couldn't, he's like the only reason that's tight capacity is because we can't find chassis." He right. said, "Apart from that, he was like, yeah. it seems like." But like people I'm talking to are saying the volumes aren't that far off. Is it just an increase or drivers that are willing to take them in the spot? Like what's no, kind of going on in some chassis. of these? It's the equipment again. So so um, intermodal volumes are down about, I think, 5.8% year over year. Right? Okay. But it's not it's not a shortage of equipment. It's, uh, it's a mixed problem. Like it's not the 53s that uh, we, you know, the domestic moves. It's more the international. The 20s and 40s. Where there's the volatility, right? And some 45s. The biggest mm-hmm. problem. So a year ago, when we talked, it was about labour, a shortage of labour. They couldn't unload trailers. Some of the big truckload carriers were sending out letters saying, "If you can't unload our trailers, uh, we'll hit you with detention charges." And the rails were short-staffed. They're telling you that they didn't have enough staff to get the trains unloaded. Yeah, they 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 uh, furloughed way too many people. And you listen to the FRA hearings in Washington. They say that shortage of labor is one of the biggest issues because it takes a while to get an engineer trained up and qualified to run these services. But this year, it's a space problem because we've bought in so much inventory in the last 18 months. Everybody's at peak inventory levels. They don't have anywhere to put it. So the shippers, they can't unload the container that the chassis trailer's on. 
So your, your dwell times, your turn times are way down. So it's the it's the imbalance caused by the chassis trailers that are sitting under boxes that can't get unloaded, not because of labour now, but because there isn't enough physical space. And you would have seen the report this week. Um, uh, CBRE reported that the Inland Empire, which is our largest warehouse market in the country, its occupancy, sort of availability rate, occupancy rates, uh, vacancy rate, sorry, is down to 0.6%. 0.6%. Nationally, it's 3.1. I mean, did anybody so, did anybody forecast this at all and, and try to build up yes. warehouses? They, well, they did. They did in Denver. They did yeah. in Phoenix. Phoenix has been a massive growth market. Um, they're building a new million square feet warehouse in Little Rock. So there's there's lots going on. I don't know that they can build it fast enough. Right. But, but here's, you know, Nate, here's the thing. Like, are we getting to a point where we'll, A, have too much freight? which we have too much stuff in warehouses. And then do we end up with an oversupply of warehouse space? Because it's crossed my mind and a few others that with all these new trucks and trailers that are in the order books and all these chassis trailers that have been coming in and all these new shipping containers that are being ordered, do we end up with a glut of all of those things at some point? Right, Because that we have to hit, we, we can't keep going at this current level of um, import volume. I mean, we have been for you know, 18 months, almost 19 months now. Uh, but at some point that slows. And, and I think that's what I'm going to see happen in the next six months is those volumes will slow down because peak season's here, volumes will fall off. And then I think the first quarter of next year is going to be a really difficult first quarter because it's always quiet, isn't it, in January? February. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think, I mean, you saw the wheels fall off the spot market as soon as holiday season was over in on January 1. Yep. We kind of predicted that it happened. I think it'll be even more pronounced next January. Now, to some degree, the fact that big carriers haven't been able to get enough trucks out of factories will will moderate supply. I think they're very they've learned their lesson from the 2018-29 cycle, so that might that might keep sort of up inflationary pressure on contract rates. Well, a question too, right, is, you know, a lot of the larger retailers not being able to predict what they could get in last year. They said, you know, it wasn't really a Black Friday. It was more like four months of Black Friday where they were intentionally trying to sell inventory in July and or August, September, October going, you won't have your Christmas stuff. Get it early. Right. And then people bought it and then they almost doubled down because they're like, well, if somebody shows up, we want it here, too. And now everybody ended up with all this inventory. In fact, I've even heard like some other companies that are coming out now. They're like trying to create a market to help these big retailers offload some of this inventory to other third party sellers. Because, again, the real winners here were like they said, like the TJ Maxx's and the Ross's, right, that are the resellers of a lot of this inventory into the secondary market, because where's it all going to go? I mean, if consumers have less ability to buy, they're now running up larger credit cards. I mean, that's just a I mean, there's only so much road you have with that credit card before you can't borrow anymore. If consumer spending drops off a cliff, right? Like one, that's great for inflation, but what does that mean for everything else happening in the economy? Yeah, well, inflation's certainly going to put the brakes on that at some point. You know, that starts to bite pretty heavily. All of those bills become due at some point, and I think that's once we get past this busy retail season, which is, you know, to, to answer Nate's earlier question, I think volumes will be pretty consistent from here on in through the year. I don't know that we'll see the typical seasonal spikes in rates, we might see another 5 to $0.10 cents a mile up on, on line-haul spot rates in dry van. 
but then I think we're going, we, we are predicting the, the bottom of the market cycle will be in the first quarter of next year, and then you'll start to see things turn up into the next cycle in Q2. That's what it's looking like right now. So we've still got a ways to go. So one one big takeaway, I just for just for the listeners that are hearing this, and maybe if, you know, because a lot of the folks that listen are they're newer into into brokerage, and they didn't know what twenty eighteen felt like, and they didn't know what twenty nineteen felt like. Uh, they may have started during the pandemic when like everything was just crazy, right? right. So it, it's a it is very it is in your best interest to stay plugged into what's going on and the big picture because Dean, like you said, things may continue along this path throughout the rest of 2022, but you, you will likely see a profound change in January, 2023. So it's important to like look long-term and have conversations with your customers, especially the ones that are seasonal and understand how is this year's season or cycle different than last year? Or, you know, how is it the same as last year? These are things you got to think about because you've got to, you know, you should be projecting what your book of business is going to look like. And do you need to put a, a bigger effort on prospecting some new business to offset possible declines in, in certain um, volumes? So just a, just a little aside there for the folks no, out there listening. That's a great point. That's yeah. a great point, Nate, because that's where I think shippers are. Shippers are looking to their incumbents on core parts of their business. Like, so they're not, I don't think they'll go back to just sending everything out to an RFP. And, and asking people to quote on lanes where they might see one or two loads a week. One of the trends that we've been seeing from our shippers um, in our portfolio is uh, carving out parts of their business to their and letting their incumbents quote on it but guarantee high levels of service for an agreed rate. So service mm-hmm. levels have to come up. That's why you're seeing acceptance levels so high. But what they're also doing, and I think this is where opportunities are for brokers, is they're letting a lot of those lanes that are ones and two loads per week go to the spot market. Rather than have a rate in a routing guide where a load may or may not materialize and automatically almost set yourself up for a rejection in the routing guide, they're not even including it in the RFP. So I think what you're going to see is more smaller volume go to automatically go to the uh, brokerage side of the business into the spot market and then a lot of core business will stay with the incumbents. And I wanted to ask you about that too, because there was a lot of discussion on that too, I had heard last week. What, what do you think that percentage is? And I know it's different for every shipper and every kind of company is a little different, but I had heard that, you know, some of like anecdotally that they think it's like 25 to 30% of lanes in any like mid to large size shipper are exactly you explained a one a week load a one every other week load a one a month load right and they're like how are you going to get somebody dedicated on that anyway how is somebody going to plan for a load that may or may not materialize these are best placed and more than likely on the brokerage side anyway so so the guys uh, chris kaplison and i'm ayub over on the fmic side say that about 30 percent of all lanes are what they call ghost lanes Mm -hmm. no freight ever moves on them they're just there in case uh, on the other side, uh, Chris says about 80% of the volume moves on 10% of the lanes with a lot of the big shippers. So mm-hmm. it's a really heavy concentration ratio when you think about it. So, you know, 25 to 30% not would, would be quite reasonable, I think, in terms of the amount of volume that uh, is moving on lanes where there's really, really small uh, volumes. Well, for and, then, and I think this is what I also kind of want to unpack too, right? Because from our point of view, like a brokerage, if I'm on a prospecting phone call, I don't think... 
I don't ever want to assume that the shipper understands what you just said, right? And I think oftentimes they're not really aware and I think they treat a lot of their freight similarly. I don't think there's as much sophistication as what, you know, Chris talks about with some of the higher level shippers with the midsize and the smaller companies, like every load goes out, hey, what, whoever gives me the cheapest rate and then oftentimes they don't get a truck and they just literally treat it all the same. And I think brokerages have a big opportunity to go and educate the shippers on asking these questions. Hey, is this a lane that's shipped every week? Is this a lane that's shipped once a month typically, right? Like, have you tried to get some dedicated assets on it? How did that work, right? You can uncover these things and hopefully really provide a different value to your shipper rather than just asking what loads they need help on, right? If they've got, like you said, 30% of the loads may or may not materialize or should be in the spot market to begin with, you've got a really good opportunity right now, one, because your costs are cheaper in the spot market, and two, it also should add a lot more value to them for them to understand the way that lanes are different. You don't have economies of scale like you do in other industries. I want to I want to take this opportunity as a chance to give a definition out to our listeners too. The, the term routing guide, because we, we've used it often, I don't think we've ever explained exactly what a routing guide is and what it means. Um, I would say, in layman's terms, and feel free to elaborate. When we go, when customers go through like a any kind of uh, you know bid process, right, and they get a list of their preferred carriers and rates for lanes, they have what's called a routing guide, and that is where you know. Unless you guys want to elaborate on it any, any further, but I'm just giving it the Barney style version here, right? So, you know, if contract business is awarded, you know, you could literally put a monkey in front of a computer and say, oh, here's the lane, here's the load that it's going to this carrier at this price or at this rate. Okay. It's like a big old Excel spreadsheet, right? With yeah. The mm-hmm. carrier on that lane at the top and your next expensive one down and, and so it goes. Yep. So that's the routing guide. That's your routing guide. Yeah. I feel like we've, we've used that phrase, Ben, quite a bit. And I don't think we've ever really explained what a routing guide is. Yeah. And it's helpful, right? Because that's exactly what it looks like from the shipper's point of view, right? It's usually an Excel sheet. It has every lane on it, what they want to play when they think it's going to go out and whether or not it does go out. Yep. And they, and they tender out a lot of their loads to the TMS systems via EDI, right? So yep. they're electronically transmitting the loads out in massive batches and uh, the carrier gets to accept or reject. You know, he, mm-hmm. just because it's a contracted load doesn't mean they have to accept that load. But I think what, what, where the opportunity is for brokers is, is here because if you talk to a shipper about that one load a week, what the shipper doesn't see is the carrier's need for load balance, lane balance, because the carrier wants another load back to get yeah. back, right? So yep. if you want to avoid that sort of transactional, because you're going to pay more if it's only a one-way load. But mm-hmm. if you as the broker can and say, in my network, I actually have a load coming back and I can build some lane balance for that carrier or maybe a combination of carriers that prefer to run that lane, you can actually provide a better level of service, probably at a better price. And the carrier themselves will actually love that. Oh, yeah. That, though, that's yeah, like the golden situation. right? Exactly. There. Exactly. And that's what shippers don't see. Yeah. And, and we talk about that a lot. Right. And I see so many brokers have so much untapped potential in their own. We'll call it like in their own lanes. Right. And I don't even know what you would refer to, but it's like, look at your customers. Look at the loads that you're running on a consistent basis. If you're sending eight trucks to the same city. Right. Start prospecting that city. 
call them, explain to the shippers that you're sending in these trucks these days. It would be advantageous if they've got a backhaul getting this guy to where they need. Now I feel like you can have a much better discussion. And again, it's mutually beneficial to everybody. The shipper, the brokerage, the carrier, less time to go get a truck every week, like you said, less time transactionally. And when you get a rate that works for everybody, it's also less likely to break down because again, the shipper knows what's going on. The carrier knows where they're leaving and going to, so they don't have an unpredictable receiver that might keep them there for who knows how long, right? Might be fast, might be slow. You eliminate so much of that and you make the job easier as a salesperson to the shipper, right? Because you're providing real value there. Well, drivers are creatures of habit. What they love is predictability. And if they, they love hauling the same freight on the same lane to the same customers. What you end up with is excellent customer service. You build relationships with the receiver. Your, de- your detention times are really low because you've got a great relationship. You can get in and out. If you're in early, they'll unload you. If you're in late, they'll work around you. And you look after the freight. You're actually, you're actually the mm-hmm. shipper's customer service front line when you have the same driver on the same load all the time. Drivers love that. That's something that they would love to see more of. In fact, we probably as an industry do a pretty poor job of building load uh, lane density around driver preferences you know mm-hmm. we kind of ignore that piece it's a it's a bit like the you know the biocompatible scheduling we spoke about in the last show if you built schedules around a driver's sleep pattern you'd be amazed how much more productivity you'd get but we kind of do it all back to front that's yeah. a really good point let me ask you this how do you i mean what are some things that you think can be done to better tap into the needs of the drivers or even we'll just say broader into the needs of carriers right because Again, one of the biggest things we focus on when I'm coaching a team that are working on the truck side, procuring the the assets or the the carriers is that like, they just tend to end up in conversations about whatever load they have. They don't ever ask more questions about even driver hours, any of the things we're talking about, right? So what are some of the things that you think people can do to improve on this? Um, I think you've got to have a lot more flexibility in your windows of appointments, but you've also got to build those appointment times around when the driver's at his best. So, mm-hmm. so that, and that comes back to when do you prefer to sleep? Like, it's just a simple question. You build a simple spreadsheet and you put that into your, you know, AS400 green screen. And then you look at, you know, not only does it say available driving hours, but it says preferred driving time, you know, or, or preferred start time. And what mm-hmm. you find is, is a lot of drivers want to start at the same time every day. And that's the most critical thing a fleet should do, because if you have the same start time, you have the same sleep time. If you have an inconsistent start yep. time, everything goes south in a hurry. Accidents, work comp claims, service failures, you name it. When you screw around with the start time, you screw around with the body's physiology. So if you lock in a start time and on your screen of a driver availability, when you're matching a driver with a load, it says his preferred start time is X. You look at the pickup time and you say, that's the guy for that load. Because normally it's sort of um, based on, you know, uh, sort of uh, last in, uh, you know, got, got the last one in is the last one out. Mm-hmm. If you restack your based on driver quality, tenure, uh, risk profile, preferred driving pattern, you get a different mix of drivers to match to a load. And it's, it takes a little bit of work to do. Some fleets do this exceptionally well. But when you build the trip around the driver's preference, that's when everything works beautifully. But you yeah. have the shipper on the other end. And we, we've talked about this before that, you know, anytime um, you get a chance as a broker to build a relationship with a carrier beyond just covering one single load, it's, it's, ex- it's extremely important, not only just the repeat utilization of that carrier, but like you just said, 
finding out what their preferred start times are in, in, in addition to their lanes and whatnot. And yeah. I was going to make a joke here about another definition of what AS400 is, but we're just going to skip over that. because no one, no one needs to care about AS400 anymore. <laughs> it's, it's in almost every truckload carrier still. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it yep. works. It's a very old. IBM made AS400, I think, right? About 30, Indeed. had to be 30 years ago. Heavily customized. Yeah. Um, good discussions. I mean, we're, uh, is there anything else you want, you think is relevant to hit on? We, we got some questions from listeners to, to tackle here towards the end here, but anything yeah. else overall that you think is think, just beneficial to get out right now? Yeah. I think, uh, any of you that are working with shippers on, you know, getting things in out of ports or out of railroad ramps, railway ramps, there's going to be so much congestion for the rest of this year. We're a long way from having our supply chains disrupted, disrupted, um, uh, back to normal you got east coast you got different problems than the west coast west coast has got labor issues and port strikes you've got chassis shortages that's going to really clog up the works on the east coast it's a different problem because of a massive buildup of empty containers that the ocean lines aren't picking up and it's clogging up the drain network and that's going to slow down the movement of containers and that's why we're seeing spot rates go up on Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, Elizabeth to Chicago, Elizabeth to Atlanta. So even though rates are relatively low compared to this time last year, capacity is tightening on a lot of truckload lanes out of Elizabeth because the, the network is starting to get clogged up because of the inability of freight to f- flow through both intermodal and drain networks. I saw half a dozen of those this week, anecdotally, just out of one of my freight forwarders. Um, a lot yeah. of congestion out of Elizabeth and go, going in and coming out. Um, we yeah. we had, I, I worked on a, a small project, like 15 coming out of there last week. And it was almost impossible to predict when they were actually going to be able to get them out and into the warehouse to translate it into the vans. And to your point, warehouse doesn't have a lot of extra space. So like they couldn't wait and stage them for the next day because- they didn't have the capacity. So we were just constantly trying to guess when this guy is going to drain the unit out of the port right. to actually be able to translate it into the van. When you see them building 12-acre lots to store empty containers, which means probably quadruple handling that empty by the time it gets to a ship, um, the, the big ocean, that's why they're charging detention charges to the ocean carriers for not picking up containers now. It's nice to see them having to pay that bill for once. Um, yeah. Let me ask you one quick question about that. I saw another company come out with like foldable ocean containers. Um, you know, it's supposed to solve one of the largest issues, which is major yeah. steamship lines ship empty containers most of the time yeah. and dray them around, right? Yeah. And they're yeah. supposed to like basically just fold down into a flat one. And then you could put 10 of them on a flatbed and Move them around, right? Do you think that'll ever be adopted? Uh, you think it's, it's a good question. I mean, transi flats are exactly that, like the for the heavy haul, like the the transi flat forty uh, footer, where the ends fall down and you stack like a half a dozen of them together. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a concept that's not new, uh, but you've got a. I, I, I guess it's possible. I don't know about uh, airtight. You obviously, you wouldn't do it for reefer. Yeah, um, for certain freight, you could probably do it. I don't know how you make it watertight. That would be uh, that's a good that, point. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, yeah. that's because the first thing you do when you pick up a box uh, as a trucker is you've got to do the daylight test. You got to get in it, close the mm-hmm. doors, and see if there's any light. Like that's the first thing you do. So I, I, huh, I that's interesting. Yeah. Someone said, yeah, and the reason I asked is you, you were talking about moving empties and somebody had sent me a few emails last month that yeah. knew a guy that, you know, launched another another company that was supposed to pioneer this. I was like, I'd really like to see how that plays out because I think there's a ton of even just wasted carbon just moving empty containers I love around. The idea. I love the idea, though. Yeah, it's genius. Someone could go out and make billions of dollars if they can make, pull that one off. Right. So. Right. 
Well, good good discussion. We got we've got three questions from our uh, listeners, but first I'm going to give a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your freight brokerage or agency, visit them online at leangroup.com. Again, that's www.leangroup.com. All right. So our uh, first First question here is what insurance do I need as a as a freight broker? Um, and Ben, I think we've got we've gotten this one a handful of times, and mm-hmm. we'll just we'll answer it again. It's pretty easy. You really don't need anything, <laughs> like legal legally. legally. You've got a security <laughs> bond that pretty much that, that checks the box. Um, but it is very common to see general liability policies, contingent cargo. Um, it's really going to be whatever your customer needs you to have. Well, Customers I got a question. Dictate that. And I want to throw this out because I'd like to hear Dean's take on this because I just learned this last week. And it's one thing I love about this industry. Learn something new every day, every week, right? Um, carriers have the ability to just not file a claim. Um, like, how does that act? I, like, I was kind of astounded that that actually is kind of the case. How does that actually play out? Yeah, and why would you need insurance? context to it because I had a similar situation that I, I told yep. Ben. I was like, yeah, like – you can try to sue them to pay to pay something, but is it worth? Yeah, it was like I guess it was like a you know a five or ten thousand dollar claim. We'll call it on like a fifty thousand dollar you know load value, and the carrier was like, "Yeah, I just don't think I'm going to do that." And I I emailed Nate. And I was like, "This is a new one." And I'm like, again, I don't deal with that side of the business that much. Nate deals with it much more, but I'm just curious, like how the industry functions, and as a brokerage, what are you trying to protect yourself? Knowing that that is a potential and risk, I'll, I'll add as well. Like I, I had one where. The, there was a high deductible on the carrier's insurance, and the amount of di- the amount of loss was less than the deductible. So they're not going to file a claim. There's, it's pointless. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But then, how do you get them to? You, you can't force a carrier to pay. You could try to sue them, but is it worth your time and money if it's a couple right. thousand dollars? And you're like, right. you know what I mean? That's how they look at a lot of motor claims, right? Where they'll just look at the deductible and say, "This is just bent metal cost. We'll pay for it." Yeah, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of carriers have a fairly high deductible. That's how they manage the cost of insurance. They have a big self-insured retention, and they pay for a lot of claims just out of working cash flow. Uh, it's only the multiple. It's only the reinsurance layers that get hit when you get those seven-figure claims. Yeah, there's a lot of injury. And- what What would you consider the high deductible? Would you say like five thousand, seventy-five hundred, ten thousand? Where would you draw the line? Oh gosh, I, I, a lot of the large stockade carriers are holding the first mil or two of any one loss. You know they're fairly high reduction. Oh, so you're talking on liability? Yeah, liability. That's, okay. Uh, you know, fender benders are they're kind of rounding errors for a lot of carriers. They're just they're working claims. Like they, your average insurance claim on the physical damage side is about eight thousand dollars. Like it's not a it's not a huge deal for a carrier when. They so I'm thinking your your cargo, your primary cargo policy. Yeah, I've, I've got very little experience on the cargo insurance. I've, I read okay. an underwriting book on the motor liability side, not on the cargo. Ben, was your was your loss there? Was it a, that was a cargo claim? I yeah, it was cargo, and I think it was again. It was like again, pretty. It was probably right around that average. I maybe like six, seven. But you know, some of the other, and this is where it came up too, because a couple other brokerages that are new were like. I mean, that's a big number for somebody in the first year of business, right? And they're like, if I got to come out of pocket for, you know, to pay the carrier's deductible, like it might sink me. So when they're looking at deductibles that were 10 grand or even 7,500, they're like, I don't want to put the truck on it because again, 
if they don't want to pay that deductible, we've got to pay it to make my shipper whole. And they're like, it would put me underwater. It might, you know, it might literally even put me out of business for some of the people in their first year. I, I used to use a TMS that would warn you. So you type in the MC and it would warn you if, if they were considered a high, de- high deductible carrier for reasons like that. So um, Ben, it doesn't matter how long we're in this industry. We always learn something new, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. All right. Our next question. Um, and these are both load board related. Uh, they were, I did not intentionally do this with you being on here today, but it just happened to work out. So what load board is best for flatbeds? Um, well, we've got Dean from DAT on here. So, um, could, do you have any insight into the amount of flatbed loads that are posted or flatbed? Well, you did an article on this last week, didn't you? DAT? Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing, uh, we see, I can look and tell you the exact numbers, uh, just under a million flatbed load posts every week. Uh, that's down from about 2.6 million back in March. So the volume of loads moving or moved in the spot market on our load board is dropping. Um, load post volumes are about 40% lower than this time last year, because last year was a crazy year in the flatbed market. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely cooling off. Uh, it's cooling off much more rapidly than dry van. So it's probably about... 10% of our business in terms of uh, rate view revenue, in terms of contribution. It's not not the biggest part of our business. It tends to be highly specialized. We tend to see, just generally speaking, more volume move in the spot market than contract in flatbed, largely because a lot of it's one-off contract work with a high amount of deadhead and a high amount of demurrage and accessorials you've got to add into the rate. So it's hard to price that on a contract basis. So we normally see somewhere between uh, 25 and 30% of loads move on spot in flatbed versus about 10% today in dry van and reefer. Mm. So think okay. about that, right? For all the brokers out there, 25% roughly of flatbeds are moving in the spot market, 10% in the van market, right? So if you're prospecting yeah. flatbeds, even though I think you said the load volume or load postings are down about 40% yeah. over where they were, yeah. you yeah. still have you know just built into the way that industry functions 30%, you know, that's a much higher likelihood that you're exactly. going to be able to provide value than you can for a van. I would say, but to, as a caveat there, flatbed is often a more specialized exactly. type yes. of, uh, type of, you, you know, got to know rate. all your dimensions, your permits, yeah. yep. your bridge, you know, vertical clearances. You got to know a ton of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just a flatbed, right? A flatbed could be a yeah. step deck, RGN, double drop, RGN, outriggers, ramps, all sorts of stuff. So you've yep. really got to know it's a highly specialized segment, as Nate says. Definitely. All right, last question here is, what information should I be putting in my load board postings? Um, I think at a minimum, DAT requires an origin, destination, and equipment type, right? Maybe a date? Yeah, date. Um, but, but more so, here's what I wanted to hit on it with this question is, the so the optional comments field inside of Really, you know, most low boards have this, but I know DAT, you can put, I think it's up to two comments. Um, Important, you know, here's the kind of stuff that I always recommend is if there's any kind of specialized equipment that is needed, put it in the posting right away. So you're not having a vet through um, carriers on the phone that that want to talk price right away. And you haven't even got a chance to talk about, do you have the right tarps? Do you have, you know, pipe stakes or, you know, Headache rack. Fill in the blank on it, right? E tracks. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what I mean, what else would you would you think in there for uh for posting? Yeah, one of the things I see that's missing all the time is the pickup time. You have a date field, but the time the time is is a huge one because if you're available hours 
you know, if your uh, projected time of availability is four o'clock today, you need to be able to search for loads that are available around that time, as opposed to wasting people's time looking at all loads that have picked up for today. So I think more information, the better, because yeah. time is the big constraint these days with ELDs. The timing of the load is absolutely critical because that depends on whether I can get that lane run that night and get unloaded and reloaded the next day. Right? So there's a lot of stuff goes into that the thinking of a carrier that's, that a load board doesn't convey, which a lot of it's got to do with the pickup time and, of course, your other points. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, throw, even throwing in like a first come, first serve, eight to four or something like that in your, in your comments, yeah. Yep. That's yep. good. Ben, you got anything else? No, I mean, I think dimensions, again, it depends on how much, how many loads you're posting, but I think dimensions are really helpful, specifically when you've got a very light but large dimensioned load um, where there's a lot of wasted time carriers calling in because they see it's 10 or 15,000 pounds, but for whatever reason, you know, it's going to take up two thirds of a truck, right? They're looking for a partial load. You get a lot of calls on those that they want to match up with other loads. And real quickly, if you kind of throw the dimensions in, you can eliminate a lot of wasted effort on both parts. Yep, for sure. Well, good stuff. Good conversation. Um, Dean, it's always good having you on here. We'll we'll be sure to continue to to have you on and have some fun with you. Any any last minute thoughts? Um, Dean, where can our listeners find you? I know you put yeah. a lot of great stuff out there on a weekly basis. Where are your shows that we can send our listeners to? Because I think your market updates are 90% of the things that we're get, we get asked about. Like you're literally doing, you know, an article on this yeah. on a regular basis that I feel like people should be up, reading. Uh, every Wednesday night, we publish our blog post uh, by equipment type. And I have a general blog post about what's sort of topical. It's at dat.com forward slash market update. If anybody's got any questions, just shoot us an email at askiq at dat.com. Uh, we've got a team of people that answer that email inbox. Um, but any particular questions, we'll uh, do our best to get them answered for you. And the shows that you're doing on a weekly basis for anybody? Uh, to- yeah, so uh, we're on Landline now, 7 p.m. Wednesdays, uh, Radio Nemo, 8 p.m. Thursday morning with Jimmy Mack and Dave uh, Nemo. Uh, and then we have our own show at 10 a.m. Eastern every Tuesday with Ken, Adamo, and myself. You can track us on LinkedIn or on YouTube. Uh, just search for DAT Freight and Analytics. Awesome. Good stuff. Ben, any last minute thoughts here? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next week, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.